Today we'll be reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the, excuse me, hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, and perverted, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. If you would turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, as we continue our study through Proverbs, we are fearing deity and defying stupidity in this great book of the Old Testament. The title of the message today is Three Stupid Things. We're going to get right into it today. Last week, Proverbs 5, we dealt with what you might call stupid sex. And not just stupid sex, but we also dealt with unstupid sex, the kind of sex in the context of marriage that honors the Lord. Well, today we're going to deal with three other stupid things in this world. So without further ado... Let's look at verse 1. The first stupid thing that Solomon addresses is this. He says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you, have, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with him." Here's a one-word summary of what Solomon is warning against right here. It's this. Go ahead and take your notes and write this down. Surety is the term. Surety. It's becoming legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another person. Now, Solomon's talking about more here than just debt. There's a lot in the book of Proverbs about debt, and we'll, we'll deal with that as we work through this book. But this is not just about debt and the managing of your finances. This is more particularly about taking on debt for another person or being what's called a guarantor for another person's debt. Solomon says, here, that is unwise, son. Avoid that. We would call it in our day co-signing. You co-sign for the debt of another person, somebody who's disreputable. Or somebody maybe you, you don't know the character of. It's not a family member. It's not a business partner or anything like that. It's just some acquaintance of yours. 
And that's dangerous. Martin Luther, there's an old German proverb that Martin Luther talks about when he's uh, referencing Proverbs 6, and it goes like this, to the gallows with guarantors. In other words, you're, you're putting yourself in danger if you guarantee another person's debt. And supposedly, it was, it was pretty common in Solomon's world to do this, to put up financial security for another person. You would, in a sense, underwrite that person's ability to take on debt or to, to be issued debt or to, to receive from another person a loan. And the issue isn't, isn't, like I said, family members or business partners. Look at this word at the end of verse 1. There's this word stranger, and that's important. In Hebrew, this is the word czar, which means foreign or strange. And it's the same word that was used earlier in chapter 5 to refer to the woman, except it was, it was feminine, the, the zara, the, the, the woman who was foreign to you, not your wife, somebody else. And, and Solomon says, don't, don't have sex with somebody who, who is a foreigner to you, a stranger. And that's the connection point for this passage here. While we're on the topic of strangers, don't have sex with that person, but also don't lend money or be a co-signer for somebody who's a stranger to you. And unlike the other two stupid things that we're going to address in this passage, this one, there's not really any wickedness behind this, I don't think. This is just somebody who's gullible. This is somebody who's impressionable. This is somebody who's naive, who allows themselves to be taken in, maybe because of good intentions, maybe because they, they want to help somebody or some misplaced compassion. They sign for a debt that they shouldn't. And here's, here's what Solomon says about it. My son, if you have done this, if you have put up security for a neighbor, if you have given your pledge, literally the idea behind giving your pledge is the clasping of hands. So there's some kind of signal, some kind of gesture that, yes, we're in this together. We'll take on this debt together. He says, if you've done this, if you're snared, verse 2, in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have, just think about this, they didn't have contracts like we do in our modern day world. So whenever you would get into a financial arrangement or an obligation, you would clasp hands. There was some kind of gesture. Or you would, you would make an oath. Or we see in the book of Ruth, there's actually the, the exchanging of sandals that would signify before the people there's some obligation that this person has and they're going to take it on. Or if, if, if it didn't involve some gesture like that, you would just get the elders of the city together, you would make an oath before them, and that would be binding on all the parties. This is, this is my oath, this is my word. I'm guaranteeing this debt of another person. And Solomon's saying here, in, in relation to this, this neighbor or this stranger, don't find yourself in that situation. Don't, if you, and if you put yourself in this kind of vulnerable situation where you're taking on the debt of another person, get out of that as fast as you can. Because look at verse 3. Let's say you've done this. Solomon says, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, haste, excuse me, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Now, the word for neighbor at the end of verse 3, this is important. This is actually plural. So what he says is, go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbors. And there's enough ambiguity there to suggest that we're not just dealing with the, the person that he co-signed with, 
but we're also dealing with the person that lended the money. So there's both of those individuals. Go to them if you can. Go to the elders of the city if you have to. Get whoever you need in front of you to, to find out how to get out of this debt. And even this word hasten here, this Hebrew word has the idea of trampling mud or humiliating yourself by groveling before somebody. Grovel if you have to. Plead if you have to. Beg if you have to to get out of that situation. Why? Verse 4, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler, because you're in danger, because this debt is going to take you down, because this disreputable person or this person you don't know, because of their business venture, because of whatever they're doing, they're going to take you down with them. So, so don't even put yourself in that precarious situation. And, and to get out of this situation, conceivably, maybe you have to pay a penalty for that to get out of it. Do it. You know, maybe you have to work off some part of that debt. If that's the case, do it. Get out of that arrangement. And Solomon uses this analogy here that's quite vivid. You know, Solomon, he loves the animal metaphors, right? He loves to use nature, and he's, a, he's an expert in zoology, as we see from 1 Kings 4.33. So he, he, uses, he uses, again, remember the images from last week? about the female. She's a, she's a doe. She's a, she's a female goat. Did your husbands try that out on your wives this last week? You know? Well, here now Solomon uses the image of a gazelle that's trapped. And this would be a vivid image for the Israelites. They had hunted gazelle. And what you would do in the ancient world is you would try to trap a gazelle in some kind of location that was surrounded on all sides except an entrance. So you would get them in their entrance, this entrance, maybe you block the other side of a ravine or whatever, and then the gazelle or the gazelles, if it's a herd or whatever, are easier to kill. Same kind of thing with a, 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 a bird and a fowler. You would set a trap, a trap that's un, unbeknownst to the, the bird, and then he falls into the trap. And, and the idea here... Solomon is getting after is, you know, if you find yourself in this trap, in this indebtedness to some other person, do whatever you have to do, like an animal that's been trapped to get out of it. Bite your leg off if you have to. Get out of that arrangement. Don't allow yourself to be ruined financially or have your reputation destroyed by an impetuous offer of surety to another person. Maybe, maybe you feel sorry for the guy, and you thought you were doing a good deed, but you actually endangered your own reputation and your own financial state. Now, Solomon is saying, you know, if you find yourself in this trap, get out of it as fast as you can. But, but what's even better than that, getting out of the trap? You know, if you're a gazelle... Don't go into a, a, a place where you can get trapped. If you're a bird, don't go near the, the fowler's trap. Just stay away from it altogether. Don't even find yourself in a situation where you're ensnared, where you become legally liable for a stranger's debt that's unwise. Now, I think that's clear enough, the, the interpretation of this passage. 
And I, and I hope we're clear about the context of what we're dealing with in terms of surety for another person. But can I, let me just take this a step further and give you some broader implications from this passage for other matters. Because you might say to me this morning, okay, Pastor Tony, we shouldn't, we shouldn't co-sign for somebody who's a stranger or somebody who's an acquaintance, somebody that we don't know that well. What about family members? What about you know, a business partner or something like that. Okay, let me give you just three broader implications from this text. Here's the first. Listen, as it relates to non-strangers, we need to be careful about securing debts for them. In other words, be careful about making yourself liable for close friends, business partners, family members. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying that Proverbs 6 prohibits that. All I'm saying is be careful. Because I've been a pastor long enough to know that bad situations emerge oftentimes in families or in business relationships when, when money gets involved and when debt gets taken on behalf of another, of another person. For example, I, I know college students that have used their college loans that their parents co-signed to purchase engagement rings. I know individuals who were part of an LLC that had a business partner that ran up all kinds of debt, declared bankruptcy, and then all of that negativity was then thrust upon the business partner because of that, that you know, I've seen some stuff as a pastor, things like this. So be careful. The fact is, even, that our, even our close friends and family members, even they can be unwise with their money sometimes. <laughs> don't amen that. We all know that's true. So don't let your affection for another, people, another person that you're close to confuse the issue. Be wise. Okay, there's a reason why people want you to co-sign with them. It's because the bank says, this person is a risk. And so when you step into that situation, whether it's for your children or whether it's for your parents or whether it's for a business person, you're saying, well, the, I trust this person better than the bank does. So be careful with that. Secondly, let me say this, and this needs to be said whenever you deal with money and the issue of Proverbs. Proverbs 6 is not a prohibition on generosity. This passage is not saying don't, don't give generously to others. This, the Bible doesn't affirm stinginess either. So, in fact, the Bible encourages us to give liberally, to give generously, to give cheerfully, and here's my advice to you. If you know somebody who has a need, if you know somebody who, who maybe needs help with something, don't enter into a cosign alone arrangement with them. Just, just help them with a gift. Just give them to the be, give to them to the best of your ability and, and wash your hands of it. Here it is. Here's what I have. Here's what I've saved up. Here's what I'm using for benevolence or compassion or whatever. Just, just take it. That is much more effective than getting yourself into some debt arrangement with another person. So let, let, parents, let's say you want to you help your children out. Let's say you want to give your children some money to put as a, as a down payment for their home. Hear me on this. Don't co-sign their mortgage for $300,000. Give them, give them, give them a lot of money if you want for a down payment but give it to them 
and then walk away from it. Don't give it to them with strings attached, like now mom and dad are going to drop by anytime we want to now since we help pay for this thing. Don't, don't do that. Just give it to them and, and wash your hands of it. If you, want, if you want to help your kids go to college, which is great, um, I would encourage you to do that. Save up for it and help them. Listen, save up enough money where you can just give it to them to be used for that purpose. Don't co-sign their hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for some degree in gender studies at mediocre university. That's not good for them. That's not good for you. I mean, the old joke when I was little was like, okay, when you go to college, Tony, don't get a degree in underwater basket weaving. Y'all remember that joke? And it was funny because it's like, who gets a degree in that? Is there even a course available for that? Ha, 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 we all laughed. But the joke's on us now. There are actually degrees out there in gender studies, and it's not worth anything. In fact, it's almost, I would even say this, it's negative in terms of your worldview, in terms of Christianity. Don't, don't chase that ridiculousness in the world and then finance it with the money of other people. Go and do something profitable, something beneficial. And some of you might say, well, what if I save up money and I want to give it to my children? And then they decide they don't want to go to college. Well, then go on a trip to Fiji with that money. That's a win-win. And let me say this too, young people, at verse by verse, your parents don't owe you that at all. That help. Listen up to the front row. They know what we're talking about here. They don't owe you that. And can I say this too? I'm trying to not be angry with this. The U.S. government doesn't owe you that either. Here's a third implication from this. And this, this is just general wisdom from the book of Proverbs funneled through your pastor to you. Watch out for debt in all of its form, surety or otherwise. The Bible says this, Proverbs 22, verse 7, the borrower is the slave of the lender. Debt suffocates. It suffocates us. And, you know, I've been a pastor for a while. I've seen, I've seen marriages struggle to get to a healthy place because they're so bogged down, they're so weighed down by debt. And, and I will say this too, the Bible doesn't disallow the use of debt. I don't believe that. Usury, yes, which would be exorbitant interest rates. But, you know, I, I've seen Christian marriages driven apart by debt. So, you know, if you make, make $30,000 a year, don't buy a house that's $400,000, okay? Just... I'm just saying. Here's a second stupid thing. So that's surety. Number two is slothfulness. A disinclination towards labor and action. Slothfulness is a disinclination, not an inclination, but a disinclination towards labor and action. This is, this is a reluctance and an aversion to work. By the way, as we'll go along this morning, you know, there's increasing levels of stupidity as we move from number one to number two to number three. And not only is there 
increasing levels of stupidity, but there's also increasing levels of wickedness. So number one is really not that wicked. It's just somebody who's maybe got a soft heart of compassion for somebody who makes a mistake. It's, it's foolish, but it's not wicked. The second one is more foolish and more wicked than the first one. And then the third one, which we'll get to in a moment, is the most wicked of all three. We'll get there in a moment. Let's talk about slothfulness, though, because, I mean, I would use the word laziness for this or, you know, but, but it's, it's more subtle than that. This person says a little more sleep, a little more slumber, just, just a little more. And then over time, they get desensitized to hard work. This person gets inoculated against labor and activity, and that's why he needs this wake-up call from Solomon. Solomon says, verse 6, just imagine this again as a father to the son, another part of his lecture. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Solomon is saying, wake up, sloth. Wake up, sluggard. The word for sluggard here, it's this Hebrew word, atzel, and it's a word that's only used in the book of Proverbs. It's used 14 times in this book, so we'll see it some more within the book of Proverbs. And I like the way one lexicon translates this word, atzel. It translates it, lazy bones, or, or sluggard. That's, that's a good term, too. Wake up, lazy bones. Observe the industriousness of the ant. And here's the animal imagery again. By the way, these ants that he's referring to are more than likely the black harvester ants of Israel and the surrounding areas, Mesor Semarufus. Here's a picture of these, these lovely creatures who work so hard. They're actually docile creatures in the Middle East. They're not, you know, fire ants like, like we have here. And... In the ancient world, they were emblematic of hard work, but not just hard work, the idea of preparing for the future because they store up for the winter. So it wasn't just Solomon. It wasn't just the Bible. Lots of ancient Near East literature talks about the industriousness of the ant. So Solomon says here, invoking that imagery, go to the ant. Go to the ant. Look at the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, verse 7, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, we know that ants, ant colonies have queens, okay? So you might say, well, they have a chief, they have an officer, a ruler. Well, yeah, I mean, but not observable to, a, to an ancient person. And by the way, it's not like the queen is going around cracking a whip, telling everybody to get to work. Maybe she is in ant language. I don't know. But, but the idea here, and you can observe this in, in the natural world, is ants, they work hard. They're constantly working. They, they prepare and they're, they're self-motivated. And they provide for the community. I think that's part of it as well. They're, they're collective in terms of the way they, they work. And that was necessary in the ancient Israelite world as well. Because your laziness, your slothfulness wouldn't just affect you. It would affect your family. It would affect the whole community. Everybody has to work in an agrarian society or else people starve. And so that's the idea behind here. Just a few more things about the ant and why it's invoked here. Ray Ortland, he says three things about the ant that, that we should imitate or, or the reasons why we should imitate her. First of all, the ant has inner motivation. The sluggard has to be motivated. Somebody has to push him out of bed. Somebody has to, you know, that's like 
parents with their children. Get out of bed, you know? And, and that's okay when you're a teenager. When you're 31 years old, that's not okay. You, you got to have self-discipline. You got to be self-motivated. The Bible says this, this is Proverbs 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Don't send that guy over here. We don't want him. One of my pet peeves personally is, is Christians who have a bad work ethic. I, I think that's a horrible testimony. In the world, you know, a testimony... It's a bad testimony for the church. It's a bad testimony for Christ. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men. You're ultimately working for the Lord. Act like it. Act like it in such a way that people see that and want to do differently in their lives and want to know why you are different. Whatever you do, work heartily. Ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. By the way, we are inheritors in the, in the Protestant tradition. We are inheritors of what's called the Protestant work ethic. And that's something that goes back to our nation's founding even before that. We are workers. We work hard, not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And that's something that's generated throughout church history, in this, this idea that because God has given us work to do, we're going to worship him with our work. And that should be demonstrated within the church body. That should, that should be our designation as Christians. Yeah, I don't know about those Christians. I don't know about what they believe, but they work hard, and they represent whatever they believe in the workplace. So not only does the ant have this inner motivation, the ant also works hard without complaining. They do their job. They get the job done. They don't mind inconveniencing a few picnickers along the way to get their job done. So the ant, he works hard without complaining. The ant also prepares for the future, and that's key. The ant knows how to gather food, and then the ant knows how to rest. In other words, there's a time for work, and there's a time for rest, and the ant understands that. In fact, they work hard in order to rest. Look, as I look out on the evangelical world, you know, as a pastor, as I see people working, I'll say there, there are two primary problems within the church. Some people don't know how to work, and they need to be exhorted by their pastor and by other people to get to work. Other people in evangelical churches, they don't know how to rest. They don't know how to take a day off. They don't know how to take their kids on vacation. They don't know how to, how to turn it off at the office and go home and be fully engaged at home. And we need, we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time as Christians. We need to be able to work hard, and we also need to be able to rest and to care for our families. By the way, God modeled something for us when he created the universe. He created everything in six days. And then he, he took off the seventh day. Why did God, do, did God need to rest? Was he like, boy, I'm so tired creating all this universe. No, he's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely capable of continuing on. Why did he rest? He did to, to show us something. Six days you work and the seventh you rest. You need rest. And I'm going to show you how to do it. And you're going to use that seventh day to worship me. That's what God modeled for us. 
Some need encouragement to rest. Some men, women both, need to be encouraged to work. Can I, can I just belabor this point a little bit longer? I take that as speaking for all of y'all, so you had your chance. Let me talk to the men in this room for a moment. Men of verse by verse, let me tell you, you have to work. You have to work. You are called by God to work. Work is not a curse. Before Genesis 3, there was Genesis 1 and 2, and Adam was working there, and it was good. And we are called to work. We're called to provide for our families. We're, we're called to die young and give all of our money to our wives. <laughs> Just embrace that as a calling. I was talking to a, a woman once at my previous church, and she was, she was a stay-at-home mom, and, and I was affirming her in that. And she, she's like, I feel so guilty. My husband, he goes off to work, and I stay home with the kids. And I said, don't feel guilty. He needs to go to work. Pack him a lunch if it makes you feel better. Like, send him off. It's good for him. It's good. It, we have to do it. And, and wives, you know, I know how that is. You know, you can work. You can stay home. You all figure that out in terms of your family. But men, we have to work. We have to provide for our children. We have to provide for our wives. And let me, let me speak to the moms in the room for a moment, too, because my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Sonia, she stepped down from work to help raise Alistair when he was young. Let me affirm you in that. That is good, hard labor that bears much fruit. So you go after that, moms. You be industrious like the ant too in terms of raising those kids and taking care of them and educating them. All of us are called to work in whatever sphere God has put us in, and it's good to work. And we have to, unless you're the king of England, is that anybody in this room? Un unless you are independently wealthy and develop some patent that's worth billions of dollars. Anybody? I, I read recently that the patent for Lipitor, y'all know what Lipitor is, that cholesterol-reducing drug? The person or the people who put together that patent They've earned over $100 billion from that patent. So if that's you in here this morning, you don't have to work, okay? <laughs> Actually, you got bigger issues. you got to figure out how to spend all that money to the glory of God and give it away generously. But most of us, we have to work. And by the way, you know, there's work for the Lord in addition to work. I have several students at Moody where I teach some of those students are, you know, career military and they retire early. Or they, they had a stint in law enforcement 20, 30 years and they retire. And then they come and they, they want to, to go to seminary to get educated to go into ministry. I think that's fantastic. So if that's you, I know this is Military City USA. If you retire early, praise the Lord. Now use your time and your energy and your resources for the Lord. Solomon compares the ant, let's get back to the text here, verse 9, to a sluggard, and he says this, verse 9, how long will you lie there, O lazy bones? 
When will you arise from your sleep? Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The idea here is a little bit more, just a little bit more, a little more of this, a little more rest, a little more sleep. This One pastor called this the curse of the snooze button. So just another 15 minutes, just another 20 minutes. Before you know it, the whole morning is gone. A little sleep. A little more, a little slumber, a little more, a little folding of the hands to rest. Verse 11, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. Poverty, let's talk about this for a moment because this is not somebody who has come to poverty through hard times or through injustice. Poverty is, is crippling in some communities. In some countries, people are destined to poverty because they have just perpetual bad governance in the country. And there's, and I just want to say for, for people like that in our country or in other places that work hard and, and are victimized in that way by poverty, that, there's no shame in that. In fact, God honors, is honored by those who are faithful despite their circumstances, despite the injustice that they're dealing with. But that's not what we're dealing with here. We're not, we're not dealing with somebody who's in a state of poverty because of their circumstances, because they, they got dealt a bad hand or because they, they live under the auspices of a corrupt government. This, this is self-imposed poverty that's brought about by laziness. And that is shameful before the Lord. And, and I see this with young evangelicals in our day, people who like to romanticize poverty. Like, let's all be like St. Francis of Assisi and let's just sell everything we own and beg on the streets. What is that? Why do we think like that? I want to tell those people, like, go to a country where crippling poverty exists and, and see if you still want to romanticize it when you get back. Nobody in those countries romanticizes poverty. It's, it can be, in some cases, a crippling thing. And when it's brought about by slothfulness, by indolence, by laziness, that's shameful. Men, God has a responsibility for us to work, and he will not hold you responsible for poverty that comes about through hard times or through joblessness or through disability. Those situations exist, but he will hold you responsible for poverty that comes about about through idleness and slothfulness. Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So let me drill down on this a little bit further, because... You know, slothfulness can happen in the workplace, it can happen with our families, and that's, that's shameful. But let me say this as well, and I say this as your pastor, sloth, slothfulness can also manifest spiritually. And by that I mean neglecting spiritual disciplines, time in God's Word, prayer, prayer with your family, prayer with your kids, and slothfulness also in terms of laboring, for Christ within the context of the local church, shouldering kingdom responsibilities within the church body. 
Slothfulness can be present there as well. You might say, well, I don't know what my gifts are, Pastor Tony. I don't, I don't know how to serve in the church. Well, try something. Trial and error. You know, go, go find a place. Go talk to a ministry lead and ask them, can I serve? I just spend three months doing something and see if that doesn't light something up inside of you. So you might say, well, I'm too busy to serve the local church, Pastor Tony. I'm too busy. Yeah, that is a problem. That is a problem. Busyness. Too busy doing the stuff of life and work and family to use the gifts that God has given you for the benefit of the church. Listen, church. Love y'all. But let me get straight with y'all. Don't let the busyness of life be an excuse for slothfulness in serving the Lord. Don't let the busyness of life... There are tons of stuff in this world that easily occupies your time. Don't let the busyness of your life excuse slothfulness in serving the church. It's quite common for Christian folk and, and pastors as well to make jokes about the 10% and the 90%. You know, 10% of the people in the church do 90% of it. It's like a joke, you know. Isn't that funny? Why is that funny? I, what's the punchline? Why, why, why do we embrace that? Why do we settle for that? Is God not worthy of our service? Has he not vested each of us with a spiritual gift that we can use for the edification of the church? I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part this morning. We're not a 10% doing 90% church. But I will say this, slothfulness, it's, it's incipient, man. It gets in there and, you, you know, a little this, a little that. And before you know it, it's like we stop going to church and then we're not even serving. We're not even doing anything. I've been a pastor for a while. I've seen people gravitate that way. And if that's you this morning... As your pastor, lovingly, I want to say, go to the ant. Move on, Pastor Tony. Okay. Write this down as number three. Surety, that's bad. Slothfulness, that's bad too. Here's the final thing to guard against, factiousness. factiousness, a pervasive desire for strife, disharmony, and discord. This is more sinister than the previous two. There, there are aspects of what you might call innocent gullibility with the first stupid thing and then the second stupid thing. But this one is, is the most evil of the three. There's not a lot of innocence wrapped up in this. It involves premeditated actions of evil that cause harm to another person. And the seriousness of the offense is clear from verse 12. A worthless person. So he's not talking about the, the slothful person now. He's transitioned in verse 12. And he's talking about somebody else. A worthless person. A wicked man goes about with crooked speech. Now, the, here's the word for worthless. It's the word balia'al. And what he describes here in verse 12 is an Adam Belial. 
a man of worthlessness. And if that word, Belial, sounds familiar, it's because it's related to Belial, that term that's used for Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial? And if you remember, Paul used that verse to describe the incongruity of Christians yoked to an unbeliever. So here Solomon uses this word Belial to describe a person who is, who is contemptible, who's sinister. You might even call this person a diabolical person. So verse 12, a diabolical person, a wicked person, a worthless person, goes about with crooked speech, winks his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers. Now these gestures are different in our day than they would be in the ancient world. So to wink at somebody is like, that's kind of a happy gesture most of the time. But the idea here really isn't winking. The, the Hebrew could be rendered squint, probably better. It's the same word that's used of the lips that are pursed. So what you have here is a devious person who's signaling by the squinting of his eyes. He's got shifty feet. He's, he's, he's pointing with his finger, maybe signaling to another con artist or to somebody else his intent to deceive. But here's the real kicker. You know, you might say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. Look at verse 14. Here's the source of all this. With perverted heart, he's devising evil, continually sowing discord. That's the key right there, sowing discord. Verse 14, verse 19. And all of these descriptors, verse 12, worthless, wicked, crooked, all these gestures in verse 13 with the eyes and the feet and the finger, all of that derives from verse 14, this perverted heart. This person has a bad heart. Remember that we talked about this, the lave in Hebrew thought. This is the source of all of your emotion, your will, your being. Everything comes from the heart. This is a person with a bad heart. He's got bad motives, and he's sowing discord. He, he's a factious person. I'll even say it this way. He loves division in light of his perverted heart. He loves discord. It took me a little while to figure this out as a pastor, but there are people in our world and in churches that just love conflict. They just, they just love drama and they gravitate to it. I remember a movie that came out a while back. It's probably over a decade old now, but it was called The Hurt Locker. Do you all remember that movie? It's this movie about uh, a man, a soldier who gets addicted to the chaos of war. And they call, called it his hurt locker. I feel like there's a lot of people out there, Christians included, have, that have their own personal hurt locker, their own little gravitation towards drama and discord and pain and struggle. They just, they just thrive on chaos. They just thrive on discord. And the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. This isn't on the screen, but just listen to these verses from the New Testament. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't be a drama addict. Look for peace. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men. Colossians 3 says, And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. 
not discord, but unity. As for the factious person, the Bible has some stuff to say about that too. Titus 3.10 says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Proverbs 22, verse 10 says, Drive out the scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Romans 16, 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid factious people. Even in cases where a factious person gets away with their actions on earth, the Lord will bring judgment upon them. Look at verse 15. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. God's going to settle that, that, that issue. Calamity involves the Lord's contempt for this factious person. And then the section, it closes with a poetic device that really drives home this point. And you may not know how, how much this point is driven home, but let me just show you here. Because what we have here in verses 16 through 19 is, is a literary device that's used to heighten the, the prominent thing on the list. So let me just walk you through this. Look at verse 16. Let's, let's, let's read. There are six things that the Lord hates. Yahweh, he hates this. Seven things that or an abomination to him. Woo. Haughty eyes. Verse 17. Yeah, I hate that too, Pastor Tony. I hate that. A lying tongue. Yeah, that's horrible. Hands that shed innocent blood. Nobody's surprised by that. Yeah, we hate that too. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. All of this is bad, 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 bad. And then you get to number seven. It's like, what? What's this doing here? And finally, number seven, one who sows discord among brothers. Like, what? Why is that? Is is that a mistake? Really? Like that? With all this other stuff? This is one of the, this six yay seven statement is one of those sections in the Bible. It's an ancient stylistic device called a numbered parallelism or a numerical ladder that emphasizes the last thing. In other words, the Lord hates all of these six things, but the seventh thing is the one that really gets his dander up. This seventh thing is the one that really infuriates him. And it's the one who sows discord among brothers. And, and some people might say, well, yeah, I'm a divisive person. It's not like I killed anybody. Come on. No, the Lord hates this. It's an abomination to him. And you might wonder at that, like how can factiousness, how can that be more odious to the Lord than murder? How can, how can a false witness or more murder, you know, how, aren't those things worse than factiousness? What, what's he trying to say here? I'll give you two answers to those questions. The sowing of discord, the reason it's the seventh thing, the reason it's heightening is because it involves divisiveness among brothers. Everybody see that at the end of verse 19? So the idea here is that worse than a random act of violence, worse than some of these other things, is, 
is somebody who intentionally goes into a place where there's unity, where there's brothership, where there's this fellowship and, and sows disharmony, sows factiousness, tries to split that up. Whether that's, you know, sibling relationship in a family or the brothership, the fellowship that's possible within the community of faith, Old Testament Israel, New Testament church. The other option here in terms of interpretation is that Solomon's hyperbolizing. And I think, I think that has to be part of what he's doing here. He's exaggerating to make a point. God hates the sowing of discord. It's an abomination to him. So take it seriously. You can't, you can't be like, yeah, well, you know, I'm divisive in the church, but it's not like I killed anybody. No, God hates that. God hates it. Don't dismiss or, or water that down. And, and people in our day might say, yeah, the church is dysfunctional, but, but who cares? No, God cares. God doesn't want the bride of Christ to be dysfunctional and full of disharmony and discord. That dishonors him. In fact, it's an abomination to him. Just feel the weight of this. Sowing discord. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak in him, even into your heart right now. Are there little things that you do that might cause that within the church community? Paul reinforces this in Ephesians 4. You can read this on the screen. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Who's the one another? That's the church. As God in Christ forgave you. Why should I, Pastor Tony? Why should I forgive other people? Because Jesus forgave you. Surety, slothfulness, factiousness. These are things that we need to guard against as followers of Christ. Let me close by asking a big question. And I want you all to think this through with me, okay? One of the things that I've been doing as we've been working through Proverbs is I'm trying to think, okay, how do we understand this 3,000-year-old text inspired by the Holy Spirit in light of what Jesus has done for us on the cross? And I think that's a, an important intellectual exercise for all of us. Is, is how does the cross impact this? I was at a small group this last week, and we were talking this through. Okay, there's Proverbs 5. There's these sexual ethics. There'll be more of that in Proverbs. There's Proverbs 6. There's all this, this moral reasoning. What do we do with that on this side of the cross? How is our approach to Proverbs altered by the fact that Jesus died for our sins? Let me ask it another way, and here's, here's a way to approach this question. How is our reading of Proverbs as Christians different from a modern-day Jew or a Muslim or, or somebody who just wants to read and apply these principles who's not a believer. And, and here's my answer to that. We read this Old Testament, reread Proverbs 6 with gospel lenses. We read the Old Testament Christologically. Anyone can read Proverbs 6 
and benefit from it because there's common grace here. If you live your life like this, you're going to end up more than likely with a better life in terms of the truism. But, but our, as Christians, we're not just going to the Old Testament looking for good ethics to live our lives by. We don't just want good ethics, we want gospel ethics. I know I've said already before that we don't want just good kids, we want gospel kids. We don't want to be just good parents, we want to be gospel parents. Let me use that terminology in terms of application and, and say, we're not just coming to Proverbs 6 and saying we want good ethics, no, we want gospel ethics. What do you mean by that, Pastor Tony? Let me give you three things quickly. Gospel ethics... Here's the difference between good ethics and gospel ethics. Gospel ethics glorify God and not us. This is not human-centered. The word is anthropocentric. This is not anthropocentric. This is God-centered. We want to please God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We want to delight God and we want to delight in God. And we pursue these things and we live our lives in this way and we avoid things like surety and slothfulness and factiousness, not in order to puff ourselves up, but in order to glorify the God who saved us from our sin. And secondly, the difference between good ethics and gospel ethics is this. Gospel ethics starts at the cross and not inside of ourselves. There's not good inside of us. There's not enough there in order to fulfill this ultimately. We've got to start at the cross. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't go to Proverbs 6 and think, well, I'm going to fulfill this and somehow earn favor with God. You can't do it. And in fact, Solomon, who wrote this, he failed miserably himself. You need a power outside of yourself. You need the cross. You need Jesus Christ, the true and better Solomon, true and better wisdom, to save you from your sins, and then you can chart a course for good ethics, gospel ethics that please the Lord. It starts at the cross, not inside of ourselves. And then thirdly, gospel ethics are powered by God, not by us. Please don't listen to this sermon on Proverbs 6 and think to yourself, I'm going to conquer these things. I'm going I'm to do everything that Solomon couldn't do. You will fail miserably at that. You need a power that's greater than yourself. You need a power. In fact, God in his goodness, for those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior, God has given us this wonderful gift that allows us to fulfill these gospel ethics in ways that we couldn't do it in our own power. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit, who has saved us, propels us forward, to live lives that are pleasing to Him. Let me say it this way. Gospel ethics, the, the difference between good ethics and gospel ethics, gospel ethics start with grace. We need God's grace. And then by God's grace, we can live lives that are pleasing to Him. Y'all with me? It's so important. Pray with me towards that end right now. Lord Jesus, please hear my heart in this. I don't want us as a church to leave this morning embracing some pharisaical attempt to please you in our own flesh or to obey 
Lord, your principles apart from the power that you give us. Lord, we, the men and women in this room, we are, we are hopelessly dependent upon you for everything. And Lord Jesus, you did something that we couldn't do apart from you. You did something, Lord, that saves us from ourselves, that saves us from our own striving. And Lord, we're a church here this morning that testifies to the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of salvation that's made possible through the death of our Savior. So Lord, we're here. We testify before you and the world that Jesus Christ, the true and better Solomon, the true and better wisdom from above, Lord, we believe that he died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. By faith in him, we can have eternal life and the Holy Spirit indwells us and propels us to live a life that's pleasing to you. Help us in that, Lord. We're here before you, men and women, unworthy of your grace. Lord, each of us in this room, we've all done foolish, stupid things in our lives. We don't hope in ourselves. We don't trust in ourselves. We trust in you. You give the salvation that we need and you also give us the wisdom, Lord, that we can't produce inside of ourselves. So, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to be faithful. Help our lives, Lord, to be drawn in to obedience in a way that would honor you and worship you. We offer these bodies, Lord, as living sacrifices holy and acceptable before you. Transform us, Lord, by the power of your word. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Let's just say amen together, church.